Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from February 6th by Pastor Randy titled, Nehemiah, Build Back Your Faith, Part 4. All right, so we have been in Nehemiah. And what we've been doing is looking at the revival that occurred in Nehemiah in order to encourage our own revival. And what we said is first they begin praying and fasting. But what was behind that? Behind that was a sense of desperation. They were broken over the sins in their own heart, in their own lives, and being broken about not only their own sin, but the sin of the culture. And not only that, be broken of how we as Christians have given our culture a reason to mock God. And those three things go together. There has to be a broken in us over our own sin and the sin of our culture. But listen, you won't ever experience brokenness over the sin of a culture if you're not broken over the sin that's in your own life. So those things go together. You can't separate them. And then we saw how Nehemiah risked his life to go before the king and also tells the people, our God will give us success. What's behind that? Behind that's faith. Just as you can't have revival unless you feel that need, there's this desperation inside of you, you cannot have revival without faith. I mean, think about it. It's a lack of faith that God's in a position where we need revival to begin with. So, of course, you need an expression of faith. So, let's put it this way. Your deep dissatisfaction will lead to a step of faith. So, that's where we've been. Now, let's pick up in chapter 2 to set up for when we see chapter 3 here later on today. So, I said to them, this is Nehemiah, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do the work. So what I want you to notice is that first part of that first uh, verse that we read is how Nehemiah goes to them and says that your, your, your city's in rubble, it's in ruins, and the gates are burned. And what Nehemiah does, he says, I have a vision. I have a vision on, on the situation that you're in. God's given me a vision about it. Now, here's the definition of a vision. A vision is a deep dissatisfaction with what is and a clear grasp of what could be. And the first thing I want you to notice is how Nehemiah had this deep dissatisfaction with the way things were. The cities is in ruin. Our gates have been burned. This is important. The reason it's important is because so often we get used to the mess. How many of you have a project at your house that hasn't been finished or a room in your house and it's just a mess and you just gotten used to it? See, we get used to the mess. We get used to the marriage messes. We get used to the anger messes. We, we get used to the, to the relationship messes, the sinful messes. We just can't get used to the mess. But not only can we get used to the mess, what we can do is we can get a habit of complaining about the messes and not doing anything about them. So maybe people aren't just used to the mess. Maybe they see the mess, they're aware of the mess, and all they can do is complain about it. When my younger son was in high school, the thing I remember 
And I've noticed talking with them later on in life, their memories are completely different from my memories about some of these things. But what I remember going on is that he would often complain constantly about his homework. You know, why they give us this type of homework and why we have to do this and why they ask us to do this. They never talked about any of this in class or just go on and on complaining about it. Now, don't get me wrong. He was a great student. He graduated with honors. He was one of the lotties. I can't remember which lottie he was, was, but he was one of the lotties. He he made great grades. But I often had to tell him, look, if you would just spend the time doing the homework as you had complained about it, you'd be done 20 minutes ago. And that's some people, they just want to complain about it, but they don't want to do anything about it. Okay. Now, the next verse. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So here's what you need to know about this. Whenever the people said, let's rise up and build, the very next verse, people rose up and opposed. That's just a necessary part of the process. There's going to always be relational obstacles you have to go through when you want to rebuild, when you want to experience revival. There's going to, it's just going to be there. That's just a necessary part of the process. That, that's just a, uh, the way it is. Now here, here's what I want you to know about this. God's purposes or not purposes, but purposes for our lives are too big to achieve by ourselves. I did look over this beforehand, <laughs> believe it or not. I looked through it when I was putting it in there. So. Yeah, but I didn't have my glasses on. That's my defense here. Okay. But God's purposes for our lives are too big to achieve by ourselves. We have to have other people. I don't care how good the quarterback is. He's got to have a good offensive line. I don't care how well-trained a soldier is, he has to have a platoon. I don't care how good the person of the pastor is, he has to have a, a church. You have to have a community. You can't do this by yourself. And there's going to be obstacles, but still you have to have others. People are going to stand up and oppose, but that doesn't mean you can just say, I'm going to do this alone without any people. You have to have others. Here's the thing. Whenever God gives a vision, it's not just to an individual, it's to a community to pursue that vision with. God gave Moses a vision for the Exodus. God gave David a vision for a temple. Nehemiah, a vision for a wall. In each of those cases, they could not do this alone. They had to have help. So what I want you to understand is that whenever you want to rebuild something. Whenever you want to have a revival, rebuild a wall, whatever the case may be, you can't do it by yourself. Yes, there's going to be obstacles to overcome. Yes, there's going to be relational obstacles to overcome, but you have to have other people. Okay? Chapter 3. Is where we're at today. But I'm not going to read it because it reads like a phone book. Just mentions a lot of people's names in this. And by the way, going through chapter 3, this is one of the, uh, the most detailed descriptions of Jerusalem in the Bible. That's just a side note. 
That's for a trivia game we'll play later on in the year, I guess. But, but here's what I want you to know about in chapter 3. We'll read a few verses here and there, but we're not going to read the whole chapter because, like I said, it, just, it reads like a phone book, and I'm not sure I can pronounce half the names anyway. But what I want you to know is this. There's an incredible organization that takes place. They're organized by cities. You see that in a couple of verses. In a couple of verses, they're organized by occupations. You have priests and merchants and goldsmiths. In, in, in a few verses, they're organized by how the proximity is to their house. You read in front of his house, in front of their house. And what you have here in chapter 3, you have 39 names and 41 different sections of the wall that they're divided up into. But you have this amazing diversity of people who are working on these different sections of the wall. You have priests. They've got their set. What do priests know about building a wall? I don't know, but they're out there doing it. You have merchants. You have goldsmiths. Hey, if you're trying to make some jewelry, yes. But trying to build a wall? But my favorite is that you have perfumers have their own section of the wall. What do they know about building a wall? I don't know, but I'm sure it smelled good, right? <laughs> then you have, you have people from in the city, out of the city. You have a guy and his four daughters. There's room for anybody who wants to be involved. There's a place for them. So you have all this diversity that, that, that's going on. This wall is broken down into 41 different sections that they describe, and that's what enables them to accomplish this project. For years, people have been saying it's too big. Have you ever heard that? It's too much. My my marriage is too far gone. My life is too far gone. My kids are too far gone. But now they're breaking it down into little sections and able to accomplish it. So what we have in this is all these names. Why do we have all these names? Because God notices people. He notices people. We talked about this last year when we talked about in the Letters of Revelation that Jesus knows what's going on inside of his church. He, he knows what's going on. He takes note of the people. He knows what people are doing inside his church. He knows what's happening. And here's what we read in verse 5 of chapter 3. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. See, God notices the workers. He also notices the shirkers too, right? Now, what was his nobles' problem? I don't know. Maybe they thought they were too important to do the work on the wall. Maybe they thought the job was just too big. There's just no way it was going to get done. Maybe they didn't like the way Nehemiah organized things. Maybe they didn't like who they'd have to be working next to. But for whatever reason, they just stood back, folded their arms, and said, we're just going to watch. We're not going to participate. We're just going to watch and observe. Bottom line is that they didn't believe this is the work of God. But notice what Nehemiah does for them. Nehemiah, he doesn't jump down their throats. He doesn't get a whip and say, yes, you are going to work on that wall. He just takes note of them and he works around them. Nehemiah didn't get on the Judah TV network and tell the people in that day, hey, you give me 60 days to help build this wall and you'll get this commemorative brick with your name on it that you can put anywhere you want in the wall. 
But wait, there's more. I'll give you this Persian prayer cloth brought to you from Persia, made in Persia with this per Persian cotton and you can have it to use around the wall of Jerusalem as you're praying for the wall. No, he didn't get on the Judah TV network and say, if you don't be a part of this today, the Judah, the Jerusalem rebuilding wall project is going to go off the air and it's never going to happen. That's not what he did. We read it a few verses earlier. All he did was simply say, God's given me a vision. God's given me his help. Let's rebuild. That's it. He just said, here's the vision. Here's what God has done. Let's rebuild. And the people said, yes, let's do it. In chapter 12, there's going to be the mother of all parties. As they celebrate not only the wall being rebuilt, they celebrate how God's rebuilt them. And those nobles are going to have to see that going on. And every day they look at the wall, they're going to have to realize they set that one out and God took note of it. He took note of it because God knows. Not only does God notice the goof-offs, the next, uh, another ver verse 20 says, after him, Baruch, son of Zebai, dil diligently, that's the key word there, repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest, Eliashib. So this guy's doing his work with passion. It's not, okay, I guess I'll just have to work on the wall. I don't feel like it, but if everybody's doing it, I guess I'll be a part of it. No, he was passionate about it. So, so he, he, he does it with a passion. Now, there's a phrase that's used over and over again in chapter 3. It's the phrase, next to him or next to them. So as they're working on the wall, they're having to do it with the people on this side and the people on that side. They're having to do it together. In other words, they're having to do it and be unified in what they're doing. They had to learn to, to work together. Because what I want you to notice today is that not only do you rebuild a wall and rebuild your life and, and, and experience a revival through a, a brokenness over what's going on in your own life and in our culture, not only do you have to have faith, you have to have unity. You have to have unity. This is so big. We're going to be talking about this this week and next week. It has to be there in the church and what God wants to do in our lives. You have to work together. Here, know this. The journey to know Jesus is inescapably corporate. We don't mature in isolation. All right, Josh, you're going to need to press the button. It's not... We're not coming up, so press the next button on that for me. All right, there you go. That, or you could just get these little notes in here and you'd have it down. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Okay. So the journey to know Jesus is inescapably corporate. We don't mature in isolation. The more, in, okay, you can, go, you can go into the blank. The more individualized Christianity becomes, the less you're able to mature. Because we're supposed to do this together. That's how it's meant to happen. We're to love one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to, to, to confess our sins to one another, to build up one another, and all those other 25 one another's in the Bible. 
It's not something that, that we have an option with. It's just the way God has laid things out. Revival has room for everyone to sacrifice, but no room for anyone's personal agenda. See, the reason even attempts at revival often fail is because people think they can do it without one another. Most team fails happen because of the conflict within the team, not from pressure from outside the team. For example, a few years ago, L.A. Lakers, they won, I think it was like three NBA championships. Then Kobe and Shaq blew the whole thing up because they was concerned on who was getting the most glory. A few years ago, well, a lot of years ago, sad to say, but the Cowboys won a couple of championships, right? And then Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones blew that whole thing up because they were concerned about who got the most credit. It not only happens with sports teams, it happens with bands, and it happens inside of churches. It's not the, the pressure from without, it's all the conflict within that just blows things up. Because they don't know how to do things in a unified way. So what does it take to have unity? What does it take for that? Here's what we read in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. With all humility and gentleness, uh, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So what does it take? What does it take to, to have unity? It takes humility. It takes love. Vince Lombardi, one of the greatest coaches, considered one of the greatest coaches in the NFL, he was asked one time by Lee Iacocca, how do you build a strong team? And Vince said this. He says, most people think that's fundamentals, execution, and talent, and those things are important. But what it takes is as that man on the line going to be concerned about the man next to him? Is he going to play for the guy next to him? Is he going to have the mentality that if he doesn't block his man, the guy next to him is going to get his legs broke? And this is what that crusty old coach Vince Lombardi said. He says, they have to love one another. If you can get them to love one another, Oh, you've got a team that can't be beat. What does it take? It takes humility and love to build unity. That's what it takes. So why is unity so hard? Why is it so difficult? I want to give you two big reasons today on why it's so difficult. And we'll look at another one next week. Two big reasons. Reason number one, we have an enemy whose mission is to destroy the church. And the primary means he tries to do that is through relationships. We've talked about a lot this before. And some of you forget it very easily. So we're going to just repeat this for just a couple of minutes here. God is into relationships. Christ died so that we could have a relationship with God and relationship with one another. And the reason relationships are so difficult is not because that's just the way things are. It's because we have an enemy who's out to destroy our relationships with God and with one another. That's what he sets out to do. That's his goal. Satan knows 
that pressure from the outside is not going to destroy the church. When the church goes through persecution, it grows. So what does he do? He has to destroy it from the inside. Here's this verse in Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Just stop right there. Paul's saying, you think your problems are other people. It's not. That's not, that's not your problem. Your problem is not the boss who belittles you. It's not the coworker who stabs you in the back. Your problem is, is not the, the, the spouse that, that uh, abandons you or, or, or uh, abuses you. As much as we'd like to think it's people, he says, that's not your problem. Your problems are not physical people. It's basically spiritual. Isn't it true if your boss became a Christian, that would totally change the way you relate to your boss? Isn't it true if your spouse suddenly understood grace and forgiveness, that would totally change that relationship? And so what Paul is emphasizing is how Satan would love to fill your heart thinking these other people are your enemies. And Jesus said, no, you pray for your enemies. They're not the ones. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's spiritual in nature. If only we'd grasp that. In Acts chapter 6, Satan tries to divide the church by pitting Hebrew widows against Greek widows. But then the deacons come along and they're voted on to bring unity in the church. And then they, they see that there's unity in the church. And here's the result from that. The next verse says, So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So, in other words, this is in response to this problem being fixed. This little end back and forth about the Greek widows and the Hebrew widows and who's getting the right amount of food. When the world saw how the church fought for unity, it made an impression. We'll read about that again in a few more minutes. Okay. So the first reason why unity is so hard is because we have an enemy. Now let's get to the second reason that you're not going to like. The second reason why unity is so hard is this, just immaturity. Immaturity. Here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you were still not ready because you were still, not, you were still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? So the question, the description that the Bible gives for those people who are involved in disunity is what? Babies. It's babies. That's his description. All right. Most of you have had kids. When you brought your kid home from the hospital, you didn't just set them a table, put a plate of food in front of them, did you? No. They got their own special. You did? Okay. They got their own special feeding. Should have known there was one. They get their own little special little feeding, don't they? And what a great day when they can hold their own bottle. Remember that, parents? And then another great day when you give them a sippy cup. Now, granted, they'll take that sippy cup and throw it around, though, won't they? 
But another great day when you give them a plastic cup and they hold that with two hands and they're past that chunking it around stage. And then when you give them a glass cup and then when they can help clean the table and wash the dishes. Yes. You're looking forward to that. It's a great day. But what if you got a teenager who still has a sippy cup and is just throwing it around when he eats and just chunks it away? Onesies. We all have those in our background, don't we? One convenient snap located here and takes care of all problems. But what if tomorrow you showed up at work with a onesie on? You'd be sued for sexual harassment, right? What if, what if a teenager went to his date for the prom and said, I'm sorry I'm late. It just took me so long to get my onesie on. How do you know in the Christian life when you're dressing someone who's been a Christian for a long time, Long enough to be a, a teenage Christian or a mature Christian and, 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 and to been around Christianity for a long time. How do you know that you're still a baby? By this jealousy and strife. I can't believe they did that. And, and they're like a kid who has his toy taken away. They took my toy. Here's what you need to know. What God has done for us, fleshly or lazy Christians, and, and let's put it this way. Baby Christians, they don't have a problem with God. They just have a problem with other Christians. He calls them fleshly. Why? Because they're not being led by the Spirit. They don't know what it means. They're still, they're still living by the flesh. Uh, whenever you hear someone complaining that they can't get along with someone else, think baby. Think baby when you say, I just can't get along with these people. And what we read back there in, in verse 2 Paul goes, indeed, after all this time. Can, can you sense his frustration in verse 2? He says, they've had this time to grow up. They should be grown up. But indeed, they're still just babies. See his frustration? Now, I know that those are verses you would love to be thinking about somebody else right now and not yourself. We'll hit on it just a little bit more next week from a different perspective that you're not going to like either, but you need to hear. This is the next verse. For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? So he's saying, look, another way you know that they're still babies as Christians? Because they're viewed the leadership. Their view, why can't they be more like that leader over there? Why can't our leader be like that? Listen, we have different gifts. We have different ways of doing things. God has us for different purposes. And you want them all to be like your favorite leader? So whenever you hear or I hear occasionally, boy, why can't you be like more like that leader? Think baby. 
All right, so let's wrap this up today. I want to give you three different reasons why we should be unified, why we should pursue unity. Three reasons that ought to make you just passionate about pursuing unity. Number one is this, is because we desperately need each other. In Romans, we read this, Romans 12, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We need each other. We're a body, a family. We have to have each other just like one part of our body needs the other part of our body. We're a family. This is, in other words, this is not an option, okay? Being unified is not an option. We have to have it. Second reason, so the world will see God's love. Listen to these verses in John 17. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they also be in us. So that, there's your purpose clause, so that the world may believe you sent me. I in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Look, when the world sees people from different backgrounds, different diversities come together and fighting for unity, they go, whoa, we haven't seen that before. That's what we read in Acts, right? When the world saw how they fought for unity, to bring unity about this little spat going on between the Greek and the Hebrew widows, all of a sudden, that gets people's attention. You got people joining church, you have the word going out. This is not an option for us. We cannot have a message to the world that's one of love for one another and for God if we're not unified. It's not going to happen. So again, this is not an option. The third reason is because we can do infinitely more together. What if, what if today Every Christian in every country, in every state, in every city, in every village, every town, every little cabin in the mountains, if all the Christians stood up and said, from now on, we're going to be living for the glory of God and we're not going to let ethnicity divide us, not going to let race divide us. We're not going to let wealth divide us. We're not going to let status divide us. We're not going to let politics divide us. We're going to stand up together. What would happen if that took place? Monday, hunger would be gone, be rid, just be eliminated. Poverty would be eliminated on Tuesday. On Wednesday, everybody would have clean drinking water all over the world. Thursday, everybody's medical needs would be taken care of. Friday, all the orphans would have homes. Saturday, everybody around the world would have heard the good news of the gospel. And Sunday, everybody would have come rejoicing over what God had done because they stood together. It would be amazing. If just we as Christians throughout the world said, we're not going to let anything divide us anymore. 
we're going to all be about the glory of God. Now, what if that happened in a church? What if it happened in this church? It's just people stood up and said, look, I know you do things differently. I know you build a wall differently. You don't, you don't make your mortar the same way I make my mortar. You don't stack your bricks on the wall the same way I stack the bricks. But we're going to work together in this. Because we're doing it for the glory of God. What difference would that make? Made a lot of difference in Acts chapter 6. Made a lot of difference in Nehemiah. When the people decided that what we're going to do, we're going to do it together. Priests. Merchants. Goldsmiths. Perfumers. All these people from different cities, in the city and out of the city. Different places all around. Coming together for one purpose. Wow. Building a wall. What a difference it would make if we realized we have an enemy and we're not going to let him destroy our unity and we're not going to let our immaturity get in the way. We're not going to go around and being like babies. But we're going to be Christian men and women who can sit at the table, make a plate for one another, and enjoy fellowship together. Ooh, what a neat thing that would be to try, don't you think? Or spiritually, we can watch people, adults, and wearing onesies and throwing sippy cups around. I don't think that's very pretty in the eyes of God. But according to Scripture, that's what it looks like to him. You're still babes. The frustration, Paul says, by now you ought to be over this. Why did you want to revert to that? It was the nobles who said, I just can't get along with these people, so I'm going to set this one out. Be determined not to set this out. Wrestle with brokenness over your own life, over our culture. Take that step of faith. Reach out and trust God and who he is, because that's what God's in the mess to begin with, because we, we stop walking by faith. And then what we do, let's do it together with one another. That's what it takes. So see, it's not easy. It doesn't happen automatically. But God here is not only rebuilding the wall, we're going to see here in a few chapters where he rebuilds the people. That's an amazing thing to see. God wants to rebuild us. That's what he wants. God's given a vision. He's given a vision. He's given us means. Now let's arise and build together. 
Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.